Amen. Amen. We're going to have a seat. And again, happy Resurrection Sunday to you all. It doesn't get old, does it? It just doesn't get old celebrating and marveling uh, at Jesus and his conquering of death. And so we want to continue to worship the Lord, and we're going to do so by opening God's Word and letting God's Word speak uh, into our lives and into our hearts and minds. Uh, and so I'm going to ask you, open to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, put your finger in that place, uh, and then flip over to Matthew 28, because uh, it's going to take us a few minutes to get to 2 Samuel chapter 7. But as you're kind of finding your way through some of the different places in the Scriptures, here's my question for us uh, as we begin, have you ever seen the end of a movie or read the end of a book first? Anyone ever done that? Ever had that happen? Right? And, and so whether, whether it's on accident or whether it's on purpose, it's kind of a spoiler, isn't it? Because you know the end, and maybe that's the reason you do that. You're like, I just don't want to be in agony. I just need to know what happens. But that there, there's kind of a spoiler to it uh, that, that, that undermines some of the, the, the storyline. And so while you know how things conclude, it's likely that you're missing part of the plot and, and part of the conflict and how some of that stuff unfolds in the story. Because the setting and the conflict and the rising action, they all contribute to our understanding and our appreciating the, the climax and the conclusion of the story. And without those, you just end up losing some of the force and the gravity of what's happening. And so today, we, we come to and we are celebrating the most climatic moment, not only in the biblical story, but throughout all of human history in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we're celebrating this promise, or really the fulfillment of a promise that was given ages ago. And what we're going to actually see in God's Word when we get to 2 Samuel is, is this idea right here, that God promises His people a king who will reign forever. God promises his people a king who's going to reign forever, that the resurrection is the fulfillment of this promised king who's going to reign for all time. And so we want to celebrate that king, and, and, and we want to celebrate his reign, and we want to celebrate that he's victorious and that we will be victorious with him. But that's the climax. That's the end of the story. It's what we see in Matthew 28. In fact, let me just read the first 10 verses here of Matthew 28. This is Matthew's a recounting of the resurrection of Jesus. It says this, after he had been put in the tomb and buried, and they'd sent guards to guard the tomb at the end of chapter 27. Uh, here's what it says in the beginning of chapter 28. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. I mean, what a moment that must have been, that the earth shaking, the, the, the stone rolled back, and the angels just perched on top of it. And I love these next couple of verses. Look at what it says, verse 4. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Right? The guards who were there to, to guard the tomb, and, and they're overwhelmed by the angel. They're terrified by the angel. And then I love what the angel says in verse 5. It says this, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. It's almost like the angel sitting on the tomb and he's looking at the guards going, you should be very afraid. But hey, ladies, don't be afraid. <laughs> right? That, that, that's kind of what's going on there. And then he says this, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here for he's risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. And he invites them into the tomb. Right? He rolled the stone away, not because Jesus was trapped, but so the women could get in and see that he wasn't there. And he says this to the women, go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead 
and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. See, I've told you. And what a moment that had to be, that this incredible moment where, where, where Jesus is, isn't in the tomb and he's been raised from the dead and off they go. And it says in verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear, no doubt, uh, and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. But notice who they run into on the way. Look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And you have this, this incredible story, this incredible conclusion. Jesus has been resurrected from the grave. He's, he's risen from the dead. That's the end of the story. And the question I want us to lean into here for the next few moments is, how do we get to this point? How do we get to this place? What led us here? And that's what we're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In fact, I'd encourage you to flip over there now. Because I, I believe knowing the setting, knowing the context, actually makes the resurrection even more glorious. Uh, and so we're going to look now at 2 Samuel 7. Actually, before we do that, we're gonna, let, let's just take a moment. Let's pray. Uh, let's ask God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, all that he has for us. And then we'll work through this great text. Why don't you pray with me? Gracious and good, Heavenly Father, we do thank you, God, for this day and for this time. God, for the opportunity for us to come and to celebrate the fact that you are the risen and resurrected King over all things, over all people for all of time. And so, God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would know and understand the truth of your gospel. God, we pray that, that you would make it clear to us, that it would be obvious to us, and that we would respond accordingly. And God, as we often pray for another church in the area this morning, God, we're just praying for all of your Bible-preaching, gospel-believing churches, that you would be honored and glorified in them. God, in the same way that we just endeavor that you would be honored and glorified in us. So have your way now, Lord Jesus. Come and do only the things that you could do. And we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, well, the title of the message is God's Eternal King. God's eternal king. And we've been working our way for the last number of months through first and now second Samuel, second Samuel, uh, where the people have been in search of a king. And they may just find him here this morning. And so chapter seven really breaks down into two distinct parts. Uh, the first part in verses one through seventeen is God's promise. God makes a promise to his people. Uh, for a king. God is promising a king to his people. Now we'll spend the lion's share of the bulk of our time looking at the first 17 verses, seeing this promise, how it's pointing us to Jesus and helping us to understand what it is that we're celebrating here today. Uh, but then in verses 18 through 29, what we see is David's response to this and really what should be our response uh, to God uh, and, and his promise of a king in our lives. But let's begin with this thought, looking at verses 1 through 17, that God promises his king for his people. Look at your Bibles. I'm going to read the first three verses here. And it says, Now when the king lived in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies. So all the conflict seems to be resolved. This, this is kind of the glory days now for David. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And here we see two men who love the Lord, who are well-intentioned, that, that, that set out this plan, we're, we're, we're going to build a house for God. And in a moment, God's going to say, no, you're not. But the point being that just because we're well-intentioned doesn't mean that we don't need to be taking our cues and our direction and our lead from God and his word. And these men who, who very much love the Lord, well-intentioned, 
and yet misinformed. And the reality is that God has a way better plan for them. And the same is true for us. If we'll listen to what God has to say, he's got a better plan than any of our well-intended thoughts could ever produce. And so notice God's promise of his king for his people. And God lays out a variety of different elements with respect to this king. And the first one is seen here in in verses 4 through 7. Read with me here. I'm going to start in verse 4. Here's what it says. It says, But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Here's God speaking to Nathan. And he says, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, that I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And so what, what, what God is getting at, the, the first thing that we see around God's uh, promise of his king to his people is that God's king is present among his people. God's king is present among his people. And, and we talked about this last week, that God's presence is this major theme that drives throughout the entirety of the Bible. That God was present in the garden with Adam and Eve. That God was present with the people of Israel in the wilderness. That God was present in the tabernacle. And then God would be present later in the temple. That God is present in the person of Jesus. That God is present with us today through the Holy Spirit. That God will be present in Revelation 21 when he moves into the neighborhood with all of his people. There's this major theme that drives through the Bible around God being present amongst his people. But I think in these particular verses, what's stunning about this is the lengths that God will go to and the sacrifices that God will make in order to be present amongst his people. In short, he's slumming it in a tent. God is long-term camping. Now, I don't know about you, I like to camp. I just don't want to camp for centuries, right? But that's what God is doing here, and he's doing it so that he can be present amongst his people. And God's presence speaks to God's investment in us. It speaks to his pursuit of us. It speaks to his care for us. It speaks to his nearness uh, toward us. And this is culminated in the person of Jesus. This is what John tells us in John 1, that the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? That Jesus was doing what God had done throughout all of Israel's history in the Old Testament, that he's present amongst his people. But now in, in, in incarnate, in, in human form, that he's taken on human flesh. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians 2 when he talks about Jesus took on the form of a servant and he comes as a man. And it's utterly astounding. I mean, just think about this for a minute. It's utterly astounding that the God of the universe would humble himself in this form so that he could be present amongst us. I mean, just just ask yourself, what earthly king endeavors to be present amongst their people? Right? They hide in their palaces or in their royal homes or whatever the case may be, much less a divine king that's going to come and be present amongst his people, and he's going to do so in such a humble form. And yet this is what Jesus offers and affords to us. The greatest gift that Christ gives us is himself. He gives us his presence. That's part of why today is so significant in what we celebrate. That God's king is present amongst God's people. But notice also this, look at verses 8 through 11, that God's king proactively works on behalf of his people. God's king proactively works on behalf of his people. Now, this is wildly different from so many of the leaders and the rulers and the politicians of our day who don't really care about the people. They just care about their own, themselves and their own self-promotion. And yet notice, God proactively works on behalf of his people. Look at verse 8 and following. 
It says this, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Who's doing all the work? God's doing all the work. Right? He's the one who's doing all of this. God is proactively working on behalf of his people. All of the statements coming from God is saying, I have done this or I will do this. In fact, it goes all the way down into verse 14. But here's essentially what God is saying. I took you from pasture. I've been with you wherever you went. I'm going to make you a great name. I'm going to appoint you a place. I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to raise up your offspring. I'm going to establish your kingdom. I'm going to establish your throne. I'm going to be a father to you. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. It's entirely one-sided, isn't it? God is doing all the work, and David and the people are the recipient of what God has done. Do you see that in the text? Right? Nowhere in here is David being like, okay, but I'm doing this and I'm doing this. Now, now it began, it began with David saying, I want to do something for God. Right? David began with this focus on what he could do for God. Yet what truly matters is what God does for us. Did you hear that? Don't miss that, right? David was focused on what he could do for God, and yet what matters is what God does for us. And yet how many of us live our lives, our spiritual lives, uh, thinking and operating in exactly the opposite form and fashion? We think about what I have to do, what I have to earn, what I have to achieve, what I have to accomplish so that God will love me. And yet what God's Word is doing here, it's cutting against this major misconception that exists in so many of our spiritual lives. Let me just bottom line it. Loved ones, you and I don't do things for God. God does things for us. You and I don't do things for God. God, God works on our behalf. God initiates on our behalf. God acts on our behalf. God provides on our behalf. And it's not in the sense that God owes us something or that God's indebted to us but it's a sense that God is proactively pursuing us and that we're the recipients of his incredible grace. Now, now David, just like us, th th there'll be a responsibility that we have to respond accordingly to what God is doing, but we have to understand in salvation, I'm not working my way back into God's favor because I can't. God is proactively pursuing us. God is proactively rescuing us. In fact, maybe one of the clearest examples of this is in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2. You know how Ephesians chapter 2 starts? Here's how it starts. It says, you were dead in your sins. Now, not to be crass, but what do dead people do? Tell me, what do they do? Nothing. They're dead, right? They're not scheming. They're not thinking. They're not planning. They're like, here's what I'm going to do. No, they're just dead. They're not doing anything. And yet what goes on is Paul unfolds in that chapter that God is the one who initiates. God is the one who's, pro who's proactive. God is the one who accomplishes these things. That God makes us alive through Jesus. God raises us up with Jesus. God seats us with Jesus so that he may show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus. And that's similar to what God is saying here. He's saying to David, listen, man, I took you from the pasture and I put you on the throne. I've been the one who's been present with you in all these things. And I'm the one who's going to do all these things uh, that, are, that are coming forward. Uh, forward or coming down the line. And the same is true with us, that God takes us 
through no work or no effort of our own from the depths of our sin, and if we will put our faith and our trust in Jesus, that he will make us sons and daughters of his through the work of Jesus. And so let me just ask you, do you know that God is proactively working on your behalf? Do you know that God has sent Jesus to spare you from the wrath that you deserve? Do you know that God is using the circumstances and the situations in your life to bring you to a place where you will abide and you will trust and you will depend on and in him? In fact, maybe some of the very difficulties that are going on in your life right now exist so that you will recognize and realize that what you need most is Christ. And do you know that God is pursuing you for his glory and for your good? And I think, I think that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus might be the best example of God's proactive work on our behalf. And here's why I would say that. Because who said to God, you know, it'd be really helpful if you yourself could come down and save us. Hey, if you could take on flesh and you could die, that'd be, no one said that, did they? Right? No one had that idea because that, that idea was preposterous to think God was the one who did this of his own initiative because God's king proactively works on behalf of his people. Praise God for that. Notice thirdly that we see that God's king continues God's promise. God's king continues God's promise. Now there's a few uh, items that God spoke in the past tense with respect to David in verse 8 and verse 9. I took you from the pastor, I've been with you. But then notice in the middle of verse 9 the promises uh, take on a future tense element. It's talking about what he is still going to do. And what's really, really interesting, it, it, it's subtle in the text, but if, if you're paying attention, it, it, it begins to unfold. There's a promise, a previous promise that God has alluded to uh, that, that, that he draws out here in verses 9 through 12 that take us back in the biblical story, but also move us forward toward Jesus. And one of the fascinating things about the Bible is, is that the Bible is composed by multiple authors uh, who spoke multiple languages over actually millennia, not just centuries, but over millennia of time, and yet they are telling a singular, coherent story. And the story is of God's redemption of fallen, sinful people. Now, now sometimes you say that, and people are like, well, that, that, that's just because, you know, the, the guys who came later, they knew what they were supposed to say, so they're just kind of putting everything together but that's not how people work, right? The, 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 the next in line isn't like, oh, I've just got to be the next person to write this, and I'm just going to fall in line with what the last person said. Here, let me, let me try to illustrate what, what I'm saying. So a number of years ago, I had, I had witnessed a, a car accident. Uh, and so as I was talking to the police officer about what I witnessed, uh, one of the things that I was struck by is some of the questions he kept asking me. And finally, I was like, these are weird questions. Why are you asking me these weird questions? He said, well, I, I, th th some of this is based on someone else's uh, perspective of the accident. And I'm like, I, I don't know where some of their observations are coming from. Honestly, if a unicorn rode by leprechauns had pushed that car off the road, it would have made more sense than what this other person was suggesting. And I just remember thinking, what, what are you talking about? I'm like, man, I saw this clear as day. But the point being this, realizing that perspective and vantage point frames the narrative in the story. Now think about the Bible. You've got a variety of perspectives. You've got a variety of, of vantage points. You've got a variety of times and history and places. You would think if there's ever a book that's comprised of all these different authors, they'd be telling different stories, right? But they're not, are they? 
They're all telling the same story. It's a singular, coherent story. That might be one of the greatest miracles of all of the Bible, right? That they're all saying the same thing. And the promise that's continued here sounds eerily similar to this promise that had been made previously. Here, let me, let me read these, and you tell me if this sounds like anyone else we've heard of before. I will make your name great. I will appoint a place for my people. I will give you rest from your enemies. I will raise up your offspring after you. Does that sound like anyone else in the Bible? Who else does that sound like? Sounds like Abraham, doesn't it? And it sounds like Abraham because what God's doing is God is actually picking up the promise of Abraham and he's saying it's going to be fulfilled in David's offspring because God is telling a singular story and there's a singular promise that goes with the story. So when we see the promise in Genesis 3 that one's going to come and he's going to crush the, the, the head of the serpent and we see in Genesis 12 that uh, God is going to send one who's going to be a blessing to the nations and we see in Exodus 19 that there's going to be a kingdom of priests when we see in 2 Samuel 7 that there's going to be this future king. They're all telling and pointing to the same promise and the promise is fulfilled the day that Jesus burst forth from the grave and conquered sin and death and truly did finish it all because God's king God's king continues and fulfills God's promise. Now, I would argue that this has major implication in our lives. Can, can we all agree that we live in weird times? Right? Like, you're all like, really? We do? No. Like, you guys, we know. Like, it's weird. And there's just this uncertainty and fear and, and division and all kinds of other things that have now become normative in this season. So what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? You hold on to the singular promise of God. You hold on to the promise of God that he is sending and providing and giving us a king. That's what you do. You hold fast to the promise of the Savior, of the king that God has given to us. Because God's king is continuing God's promise and he's doing so through Jesus. This final element that we see here of God's promise of his king to his people, uh, probably the most notable one, and it's this, that God's king is God's provision for us. God's king is God's provision for us. Let me pick this up in the middle of verse 11. It says this. It says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, how did all this start? This all started with David saying, I want to make a house for God. And here's God saying, no, no, you're not going to make me a house. But ironically enough, David, I am going to make a house of you or a lineage of you or a dynasty of you. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. He's like, listen, David, you're going to die, but the lineage isn't going to die. The kingdom isn't going to die. That from you, one is going to come who, who will reign forever. Uh, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from us, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And here we see that God's king is God's provision for us. Now, now as you look at this and you, you, you read this, there's, there's times where we're like, man, that seems an awful lot like Jesus. And then there's other times where it's like, I, I don't think that God needs to discipline Jesus. 
right? Like, so, so, so how do we think about this? What, how, how do we uh, work through this and understand this? Uh, so, Dwayne, can you put up the first picture? Let me try to illustrate how I want us to think about this. So, so I've got two pictures, um, and, and really I want us thinking with the sense of foreground and background. So in the foreground, tell me, what do you see? What is that? It's a plant, right? Now, what's in the background? What do you think that is? It's the mountains. That's the Sandias, right? Now, we don't, we're assuming that's the case. We don't know that for sure. They're kind of blurry. And we can tell that they're there, but that's not the focus. Now, can we go to the second picture, Dwayne? Same vantage point, but a very different view, right? Because depending on what we're looking at, what comes into focus shifts. So now the plant is blurry, but what's unmistakably clear? It's the mountains, right? And so as we look at these verses, here's what's going on. There's a foreground and a background, right? And there's kind of an immediate, and then there's a long term. And so go back to this first picture, and what we see here is, first of all, when we look at God's king, is God's provision for us, we see the immediate provision. And the immediate provision is Solomon. That's what he says in verse 14, I'll be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. He's speaking of David's son. And what's interesting about Solomon, Solomon's actually going to be adopted as God's heir. And, and what God is doing with Solomon here has profound implications for us as we think about what God does with us. Because how we experience God's salvation is similar to what, what Solomon is experiencing. That we're sinners who've, who've rebelled against God and yet uh, through the mercy and grace of God we are adopted and we become heirs uh, with uh, God through Christ and in fact, that word in verse 14, when, when God says, I will be to him a father, man, that, that should jar something in our mind. Father. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 8. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And they receive the spirit of adoption, that cry, Abba, what? Father. And that God becomes our father, that we're brought into the household of God, that he makes us sons and daughters. Now, the Apostle Paul does something fascinating here with verse 14 in the book of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, what Paul does is Paul quotes this statement that was initially intended for Solomon when it says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And Paul quotes that in 2 Corinthians 6, but it's not singular. He makes it plural. And why does he make it plural? Because it's applied to all who believe that any who would believe in the Son of God would have the right to become the children of God, to become sons and daughters of God. And so if you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, you believe in Christ and what he's done for you, then you get to celebrate that you're a son or a daughter of the king because of God's provision of his king. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and the opportunity for you to be embraced and adopted into God's family exists for you because of the provision of his king. Now, entrance is simple. Entrance into God's family is simple, that you would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. It's going to cost you everything because to follow Jesus means that you're no longer the Lord of your life, but it's worth everything and then some. There's the immediate provision that points us to Solomon and really helps us to understand our salvation through God. But I think the bulk of this text isn't pointing us to Solomon. I think it's actually pointing us to something much further. So we'll go to the other one, Dwayne. Right, the bigger, broader item in the background, and it's the divine provision. And this is, of course, speaking 
to Jesus. This is pointing us far beyond Solomon, and it's pointing us to Jesus. I think it's doing so uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, first of all, make note of this word in verse 12, the word offspring. You see that word offspring? I'll raise up your offspring. Now that word offspring has some pretty profound biblical connotations, doesn't it? You can go to some other mountain peaks in the Bible and you see those same words being used. You go back to Genesis 3, the moment sin has entered into the world, the curse has come upon humanity, that, that, that harmonious relationship with God has been fractured and destroyed. And what's God's promise to Adam and Eve? I'm going to give a what? Offspring. An offspring is going to come to crush the head of the serpent. It's the same word that's used with respect to Abraham, that an offspring is going to come and going to be a blessing to us all. And it's a word that Paul uses in Galatians 3. And, and there Paul is very clear. It's not talking about offsprings, plural, but it talks about the one. It's in reference to Jesus. The promised and provided king is the offspring that God has been pointing us toward from the beginning. It's pointing us to Jesus. And that's one way that this is pointing us to Christ. But also notice multiple references to this, this concept of eternal kingdom, the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There's this eternal kingdom sense. And yet historically, what happens with Israel? Like, I mean, it falls apart almost immediately because two generations after David, the kingdom is divided, right? Solomon's sons end up dividing the kingdom. And then what, what happens further down the road? The entirety, both Israel and Judah, go into exile and in one sense, the kingdom and the nation, at least from a geopolitical sense, they're just absorbed by those around them. But what doesn't stop? The line of the king doesn't stop. In fact, listen to what the angel says to Mary when he comes to foretell the birth of Christ. This is from Luke's gospel in Luke 1. It says this, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. See, there it is. Right? This is the continuation of this promise. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Right? This is the eternal kingdom. This is the king that we've been looking for. This is the one. It's Jesus. He's the one. He's the one that we've looked for. He's the one that we've longed for. He's the one that's going to rescue us. The title of this entire series, In Search of a King, it's almost like the text is saying, hey, you found him. Here he is. It's Jesus. Because Jesus is not simply the next in line. Jesus is the destination. He's the king who's going to rule eternally. He's the king that rescues his people for all time. He's the king that's the fulfillment of the promise. And loved ones, that's why today is such a big deal. That the resurrection of Jesus cements his rule and his reign. Question, what do you do, what do you do with an all-powerful king that death cannot contain? Like, what do you do with that one? You get two options. You will follow and worship that king. Or you will position yourself in opposition and rebellion toward that king. That's it. The, 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 those are the only two postures. Those are the only two options. There's not a third way or a fourth way. No, the, 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 there's a, a spectrum on how this plays out. But that's it. You're going to follow and worship him or you're going to position yourself in opposition to him. He's going to be the king of your life and he's going to have rule over you. 
or you're going to reject his rule and you're going to attempt to go about it on your own. Or we're left to choose who's going to be king. Are you going to be king? Is he going to be king? Who's going to be king? And what's our response? And David brilliantly lays out what I think is the appropriate response to God's promise of his king for his people. So look now here at verses 18 through 29. And we see in David really our response to God's promised king. So look at your Bibles. Let me read here verse 18 and following. Here's David's response. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Our response to God's promise, King, I think there's actually three things that I want us to identify here in David's prayer, but here's the first. Our response to God's promise, King, is that we humbly approach God. That we humbly approach God. And you see this sense of awe and amazement and wonder in David as as he comes before the Lord. And there's this humility in him. And this humble approach is really twofold. Uh, First of all, make note of this. That in our humble approach to God that we're confronted with our inadequacy. In our humble approach to God, we're confronted with our inadequacy. You ever felt really small? Or inadequate? Come on, raise your hands. Have you ever felt small or inadequate? So growing up in northern Arizona, I can't tell you how many times I've been to the Grand Canyon, but every single time I stand on the edge of that thing, I feel small. And then every time I get down to the river, I feel smaller because you've got to climb out of that monster, right? Or, or maybe for you, it's, it's standing at the edge of the ocean or being in the ocean and just dominated by the force and the power of the waves. or it, it, It's being out in the wilderness under a moonless night under the stars. Whatever it is, right? We've all had these experiences where we know what it's like to feel small and inadequate. And that's where David's at right here. He's saying, who am I? What is my house? He's keenly aware that he doesn't deserve God's favor. He doesn't deserve God's blessing. And the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, the gospel confronts our inadequacy. The gospel makes clear that we're sinners. The gospel makes clear that we can't save ourselves. The gospel makes clear that we can never be right before God. The gospel makes clear that we deserve God's judgment. And the gospel makes clear that we don't deserve God's favor and his blessing. And yet the gospel also makes clear that we are forgiven and restored through Jesus and we're given the righteousness of Jesus and we're made sons and daughters through Christ if we believe. But the gospel is confronting our inadequacy. In fact, we see this as well as in how David refers to himself. We see it three times in these verses. You'll see it a total of eight times over the course of the prayer. But David keeps referring to himself as a servant But he's a servant of God. He's not a peer. We're not equals. We're not the same. God is supreme. And part of our response is to understand that in our sin, we are inadequate before God. That God owes us nothing. It would be entirely fair of God to utterly demolish us in his judgment because of our sin. 
all of us, all of us, all of us need to be confronted with our inadequacy. And maybe even some of you right now, maybe in this moment or maybe the last number of weeks, whatever the case may be, that God has been confronting your inadequacy. And in that, listen, that's a gift. It's a gift when God confronts your inadequacy. Do you know why it's a gift? Because when you come face to face with your inadequacy, you are enabled to see the other side of this humble approach. And it's this, that we're overwhelmed by God's sufficiency. David understands how inadequate he is. I hope that you and I can understand how inadequate we are, but also to be overwhelmed by God's sufficiency. Right? So who am I and what's my house? And yet what else is he saying? He's like, but God, for you, this is a, this is a small thing. And then he says in verse 21, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. He's like, God, you've done all of this just so that I, I, I would know your intention and your purpose to know what? To know that God is sufficient and to know that God has a plan to remedy our sin and our inadequacy. See, David can identify that God has a plan. Loved one, can you identify that God has a plan? That God has a plan to, uh, to, to, to remedy our inadequacy, to solve the problem of our sin. In fact, let me just ask you this. Can you see your inadequacy? Can you see the sin in your life? Are you aware that sin separates you from God, that you're incapable of resolving or removing that sin in and of yourself? And then in that same vein, can you see that God is sufficient to address this? That through the person and work of Jesus and his blood in our place, oh, God, help us that we could see that. And when we see that, I think the response is going to be the same as what David does. It's going to launch us into a place of praise. And so notice in verses 22 through 24 that David uh, is praising God for his redemption, and we want to praise God for his redemption. He says this, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there's none like you. There's no God beside you. According to all that we have heard with our ears, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. We praise God for his redemption. David is praising God for what he's doing. And specifically, he's praising God for the way that God has redeemed his people. Now, you know what redeem means, right? Right, you, you, you purchase something. I always think, I don't know why I always think about this, but you, you go to like Chuck E. Cheese and you get all those, those tickets or tokens or whatever, and then you, you want to go buy some cheap little toy that they have, and you redeem all your tickets, right? So you, you're, you're purchasing uh, with those items uh, some cheap plastic toy. Uh, but this isn't some cheap redemption. This is a costly redemption. It's the most costly redemption. God has purchased his people through the blood of Jesus and this is what we see in the death of Jesus is that we are redeemed or that we are purchased. But our hope for life is found in the resurrection. So the atonement is Good Friday. The hope for life is today because Jesus rising from the dead means that you and I will also be victorious over death because if death won't hold Jesus, it's not going to hold his people either. Now here's, here's what I want you to consider. I want you to think about this last year. I know none of us want to think about the last year. 
I was tempted to stand up at the beginning and be like, hey, this is better than doing it on Zoom, isn't it? Right? Like the last year was, was pretty miserable in a number of ways. But, but here's what I want you to consider. I want you to consider the nature of fear around death that we've seen. Never in my life can I think of anything that even rivals the fear that has consumed our society around death. Maybe you found yourself in a similar place. So this next statement probably won't help you, but you need to hear it. You're going to die. Do you know that? I'd like to think we all know that, but sometimes you look at people and you're like, I don't think we know that. You're going to die. I'm going to die. A day's coming. We're done. And there's nothing you can do to prevent that day from coming. There's nothing that you can do to stop that day uh, from coming. And so, so listen, listen. Resolving the fear of death isn't going to happen by, I'm going to be more cautious, I'm going to be more careful, I'm going to get more healthy, I'm going to eat right, whatever it is. You can't stop it from coming. Here's how you resolve the fear of death. The fear of death is resolved by trusting in the author and giver of life to rescue you from death. That's the one who conquered death. That's the one who knows how to do this. He's the only one that can do that. So we praise God for his redemption of us, and we are trusting God for his preservation of us. We praise God for his redemption. And then finally this, how do we respond to God's promise, King? That we, like David, should possess confidence in God's plan. So verse 25 to 29, there's a variety of things that uh, David says. I'm not going to read all of it. I'll just uh, highlight a few of them. Verse 25, and now, O Lord God, confirm the word that you've spoken concerning your servant. Verse 26, and the name and your name will be magnified forever. David's like, man, I trust God. I've got confidence in God. But probably verse 28 says it best. And he says, and now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. He's like, God, because your words are true and I, I, th- th- there's confidence that we can have in you, this is, this is going to come to fruition. David has confidence in God's plan. Love one, do you have confidence in God's plan? And you see in verse 29, he says, now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. And this house that's blessed forever is eventually going to produce a baby that's going to be born in a manger, who's going to live a perfect life, who's going to be crucified. And oh, see, now we've come full circle, haven't we? And now we're back here at Resurrection Sunday. This is where the story just comes full circle. Because the resurrection of Jesus isn't this really cool but isolated moment. It's the culmination of God's story and God's promise. And I think it's made far sweeter, far more glorious when we see the totality of God's story, the, the fullness of God's plan, that from the very beginning, this was always God inten- God's intention to rescue us. It's the fullness of his story, but it's also the epicenter of our story, that Jesus is the king of all time and for all time, that he will be followed or he will be rebelled against. There's two camps. That's it. There's two camps. And so the question you've got to ask yourself is, which camp am I in? Is he the king? And am I, am I submitted to and following the king? Or if the truth were known, that you actually find yourself in the other camp. That you, you stand in opposition and rebellion to him. And so let me start for those of you who would 
if you're just being honest, you don't actually fall into the camp of being a follower of Jesus. You're not a follower. You're not a believer. Today, listen, today, today is the day for you to be restored to your king. To come to grips with the fact that your sin has alienated you from God, but God in his infinite mercy sent his son to die in your place so that you could be reconciled and redeemed and restored back unto God if you will put your faith in Jesus and trust in him. You can move from the camp of opposition and move into the camp of being a member of the family of God, to become a son or a daughter of God himself. And for those of you, many of you, most of you, maybe all of you, I don't ever want to presume that's the case, but for those of you who are followers, loved ones, you have everything to celebrate because you have a king who's victorious over death. You have a king who will rule forever. You have a king who is the promise uh, that, that, that is fulfilled in Jesus. You have the hope of everlasting life, which will temper and mute any fear of death. And you have all of that because God has given us a king who is present amongst his people, who proactively works for his people, who is fulfilling the promises of God for his people and as a provision for us. We got everything, everything, everything to celebrate today. Let us do so. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the provision of Jesus. God, we thank you that you've given us a king that conquers death, that brings us unto life. God, we thank you for this great and glorious king who raises us from the dead as well. And so as we celebrate your resurrection, God, we are also celebrating the fact that we too will be resurrected unto life with you. And so, Father, in the ways that, that, that we've missed that or we failed to understand that, God, for ways in which uh, we've lived in, in, in a manner that's, that's more focused on death instead of life or, or what, whatever it is that you want to speak into our lives, God, we pray that you would do that. And then, God, we pray that you'd be rightly celebrated, that you would be worshipped, that you would be honored, that you would be lifted high because you, it is right and good for us to praise you. And so we pray that we would do that now when we pray this all in your name. Amen. Why don't you